today's scripture reading is coming from John 20, verses 11 through 31. It is page 756 in the Blue Bibles. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and one the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They, they have taken my Lord away. She said, I did not know where they have put him. And then at, and this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. She asked, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Mandolin went to the disciples with the news I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sides. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with, the, with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks on his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand in, into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the doors, were the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, reach out your hands and put them into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, and that by believing you may have the life in his name. Good morning. If you, have your, you know what? Every speaker who comes up here says good morning and has to say it a second time. All right, let's try it again. Good morning. A goal for 2018, by the end of 2018, I'm saying good morning only one time, all right? You've been posted, okay? Um, keep your Bibles open to John chapter 20, right where Josh read for you this morning. And I want to thank him. Uh, I came up to him this morning carrying a microphone, 
and just kind of gave him one of those smiles so he knew what I was going to ask. He goes, you're killing me, man. So, so I understand it's nerve-wracking, but I appreciate it, Josh. I appreciate you doing that. And uh, Keep that open there. We're going to spend most of our time this morning. We're going to turn back to John 5 in a bit, but I'll, I'll tell you when to do that. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for your love this morning. We thank you for everybody who's, who's here. Lord, I thank you for just the spirit of unity and togetherness in our annual congregation meeting and, and just the spirit of worship here in the service, Lord. And um, we pray now that you would, you would cash in on all of that by using your word to speak to us this morning. And God, that we would be humble responders to it, that we'd push aside our distractions or, or what's got us in a wrench or what, what may, be, may be taking our focus away from here and just humbly receive from you this morning. And we pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever trusted in the wrong thing? Uh, one of the things this church likes to do is we like to take mission trips to go visit our missionaries in, on their fields where they're at. And so uh, back in 2011, we took our first trip to Berlin, Germany. And I was on that group. And I remember uh, one, of the asks, one of the things I felt bad about during that trip is that our mission partners there, Fritz and Lynette Good, had to pretty much kind of hold our hands the whole week. Because right, none of us spoke German, we couldn't read any signs, we didn't know how to get around the city, so everything we did that week, they had to first leave their apartment, come to where we were, and then just lead us around all week. And I thought, man, they're, they're busy people, right? They're full-time missionaries, they've got work to do, and, and we're here to help them, and all we're doing is just being a drain on them. And so by 2015, I was making my third trip there, and so I made a goal that Fritz and Lynette were not going to have to take us anywhere. Right, that this was going to be the first group that was just, wasn't a burden to them. It was going to be freeing for them. And so in advance, I studied uh, the Berlin uh, public transportation maps. I got everything down. And so when we got there that week, I told them, hey, you know what? We got this. Just tell us where we need to be and when we need to be there and we'll get there. So this process worked well uh, for several days. But several days into the trip, uh, we're, we're in downtown Berlin. And uh, we needed to get to a place called the Brandenburger Tour. It's pretty famous. Uh, but in order to get there, we had to hop on a bus. And I knew where the bus would come. It was about a half mile away. And so I start walking that way. And there's 15 of us. So 14 people start following me. Well, we'd just eaten lunch. And what you often do in Berlin is just eat outside. They just have street vendors selling food. And so I had trash in my hand. And so we're walking on the sidewalk. And there's a split rail fence to my left. And I see about 30 yards to the left, there's randomly placed this trash can. And there's nothing around it. I don't know what it's doing there, but I think, hey, that's, I don't want to carry this trash anymore, so I'll go there. And there was a little split in the split rail fence. And so my goal is to just cut through the fence, run over there, drop it in, and then I'll dart back over to the group and, and lead them the rest of the way to the bus stop. And, and so I cut through the fence, and I go, I go the 25, 30 yards of trash can. I put the trash in, and I turn around, and all 14 people have cut through the fence and followed me like baby ducks all the way to the trash can. And I was like, you mindless drones. Like, where did you think a bus would be here, you know? And, and the end result was we did okay for the week, right? But, but what they were doing is they're putting their trust in what amounts to a high-functioning moron, right? And so uh, we got through it, um, but, but we always, see, the thing is we always are trusting something, right? And, and, and if you want to get Americans mad, tell them that because they'll push back on it. Uh, because we always put this high value on control. We like to believe that we're calling our own shots, and you want to get, especially citizens of this country, man, talk about restricting their freedoms, right? You're, you're going to get them real upset real quick. But the reality is that all of us at some level are bound. You see, all of us have based our lives around a guiding set of principles. And these principles help us determine what we believe is right and what we believe is wrong. These principles help us determine what we value and what we won't value. This, these, they determine what we give 
credence and credibility to and what we dismiss. See, it's undeniable that you have a worldview, and that worldview acts as a lens which shades the way that you see our world. It, it sets your priorities, it influences your wants, and it, and it shapes your goals and dreams. And subconsciously, unconsciously, we trust our worldview. We trust what it is that we've given ourselves to. For many people throughout history and even in our world today, this is the idea of a religion. Or they have a set principles, set of principles and rules and guidelines that they're going to follow. It's been handed down to them through tradition and, and whatever the leaders are of the religion. And so those things that you're handed then shape how you view life and eternity and you also dismiss anything that outside that speaks different to that. Others build their lives around an idea, a popular one in our day is just this American dream. This, this idea that I'm just going to outwork everyone. It doesn't matter where I start, right? I'm going to outwork everyone around me because that's what gets me ahead. And so by the sweat of my brow, I'm going to get the bigger home and the nicer car and get the salary and I'm going to move up because I'm going to outwork all of you. Others buy into philosophies, things like skepticism and nihilism that just lead to just a really apathetic life that sees no purpose at all. But by far our most popular worldview is the God of self. That what you trust most is your gut, right, and your instinct. This, this is not only popular today, it's championed and celebrated. We're told all the time, just listen to your heart. Right? Just trust your feelings. Just be you. Don't let anybody else tell you who you are. You just be you. Have you ever felt like maybe you've been trusting in the wrong thing? That you've actually surrendered to a God that doesn't have all the answers? Has your worldview ever let you down? Wouldn't it be great this morning if there is an, an actual anchor for your life, right? There's something that was totally reliable, something that you could cling to and hold to, and it would never lead you astray. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that no matter how confusing life got, there was somewhere you could turn and you would know you would get a proper answer. Or wouldn't it be great to have something that will, that will never let you down and never abandon you, never forsake you, that, that even if everything came crumbling down around you, you could have an anchor that would hold firm. Would that not be the greatest news in the history of the world? See, all of us are searching for this. This is a common experience of mankind. We want this. We want this fixed guiding point in our life. We want to be shown the way to go with no unnecessary detours to a trash can. We want answers and truth in the face of confusion and skepticism. We want abiding love in the face of all our emotional hurts and scars. We want to feel like we belong and are connected in this world that's getting more and more isolated. We want to know that we have value and we really want to know where that value comes from. And the greatest news today that I can tell you is that we can know and experience and feel all of those things. That we actually can have a foundation that is unshakable. We can trust in something that will absolutely never let us down. And it's really not far from any of us. But sadly, too many of us miss out on it. John chapter 20 is where we are today, and, and when I read this chapter, um, I, I think of a, of a popular Vince Lombardi quote. Those of you who grew up watching ESPN, at the start of every NFL films show, there's a quote of Vince Lombardi screaming, what the heck is going on out here? Right? That, and that's what I think in John 20. This is one of the craziest scenes in all the Bible. And, and, and the problem is that you can skim over and read at first glance and not realize just how nuts this is. Right? Let's start here. The, the chapter starts with, there's a dead guy who's now alive. Any of you experienced that this past week? Right? And then you go from there and you, Mary comes to the tomb and she thinks, she doesn't think that this guy's alive because he was dead. And so her first conclusion is, man, somebody stole the body and I need to figure out where. 
And then John, in the passage Mark went through this last week, John and Peter get this news and they decide to go running. At some point, John decides it's a race and he brags for all eternity how he beat Peter, right? And then they get into the tomb and the, the grave clothes are there. There's no body, but the grave clothes are there and they're not thrown on the ground. They're folded really neatly as if somebody took their time. And then Mary goes back to the tomb in the passage Josh read for you today and she sees two angels. Again, anyone experience that this week? Actually, don't answer that, all right? Uh, then Jesus appears to her. And she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener of all things. And then when she realizes him, she tries to grab him. He says, no, you, you don't, don't hold on to me. And she goes and tells the disciples that, that, that she's seen the Lord. And they celebrate by locking themselves in a room. It's a big party, right? It's like Jesus is thinking, I came back from the dead. You think a locked door is going to keep me out, right? And as they're still wrapping their heads and mind around this, he just appears. He commissions them. He appears right in front of them and he sends them out into the world with power and tells them to change the world. And then we're told of this Thomas who wasn't there. Despite what everyone's telling him, right? He refuses to believe. I don't care what any of you guys say. Unless I put my fingers in his side, unless I feel the nail holes, I will not believe. And so a week later, with the doors still locked for who knows what reason, Jesus is there again and says, hey, Tommy, come here. Check this out. And the whole chapter is just wild. But as I read it, I thought, man, something's missing here. What's missing? Let me ask you, if you were Jesus, what, what is missing from John chapter 20? Like, just think about it. You're Jesus. You know who you are. Right, you, you are literally God who came to this world to take on human flesh. You, you actually became a little tiny helpless baby for heaven's sake. And you did that to, to grow up and experience all of our weaknesses and all of our limitations and to pave the way for us. And our big reward for all that is that we turned on you. Throughout his entire earthly ministry, Jesus was ridiculed and mocked and doubted and hated. And standing above all the rest in this was these, this group of religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, who were overcome with just jealousy and scorn when they thought of Jesus. And so they orchestrated your arrest and they put you through this joke of a trial and they demand that Pilate crucify you. At which point you are stripped naked, you are beaten to a bloody mess, you are nailed to a cross and hoisted up in shame to die. And while you're dying, they're walking around your cross celebrating and mocking you. And they're making fun of the idea that you could ever be a king or ever be God's son. And then, three days later, you defeat death. You, you defeat their entire plan. Let me ask you, are your first two stops going to be to Mary sitting all alone and 11 cowards in a room? Not me. You know where my first stop would be? The Sanhedrin. I'd walk in, what's up, fellas? How you like me now, right? What, what do you got to say for yourselves now? And then I go from there to Pilate. Hey, Pilate, you still don't think I'm a king? Huh? What do you got to say? And then I go to the soldiers who beat me mercilessly and say, hey, guys, what's going on? And I would do this because I'd want to see their face. Right? I want to see the fear overcome them. I want to hear them grovel. As I'm speaking, I realize, man, I should probably get some counseling. This sounds like I have issues, right? <laughs> Thank God Jesus isn't like me, right? And, but let me ask you, isn't there a less vengeful way to do that? What would be the harm of repeating Palm Sunday in the magnificent entrance? Why not recreate the Sermon on the Mount where you speak to thousands? Why not some big glorious reveal why Mary? Why those 11 cowards? Now listen, to be fair, before the ascension, okay, that we were told in the Bible that Jesus will appear before a little more than 500 of his followers. 
That's a, that's a decent size, but 500 is nothing compared to the crowd sizes he was getting before the cross. So what's going on here? Well, it turns out that Jesus didn't come to earth to prove everyone wrong. Right? He didn't come to earth to, to put on a show. He came to establish the kingdom of God, which means this. The miracle was never the point. Jesus' resurrection is the single most important event in the history of the world, but it wasn't the end-all point for Jesus. And here's why. Miracles never produce lasting faith. Do you realize that? So many people in our day ask, if God would just show me a sign, if he just split the heavens open and come down and tell me what to do, I'd have faith. And I say, no, you wouldn't. Because all of human history proves you wrong. There's example after example after example of this in the Bible. The entire Old Testament is based, all built around God's relationship with his chosen people, these Israelites. And, they, and those people, man, they see some of the most amazing things. They see things that you and I will never see. They had firsthand, they were firsthand witnesses to all the plagues on Egypt. They were there when the Red Sea split and they walked through on dry ground. They followed the pillars of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They saw the manna fall from heaven providing for their needs. They saw water come from the rock in the, in the desert. They watched as the Jordan River parted. They, they were there as the walls of Jericho came crumbling down by just blowing some horns. They saw one miraculous victory after another, after another over their enemies as their Lord, their God, went ahead of them. Story after story of God showing up in amazing, miraculous power on behalf of his people. And the end result of all of it is they were the most fickle, unfaithful, rebellious people you could ever read about. They had no faith at all. Because miracles don't produce lasting faith. I want you to look again at how John closes this chapter because he, he gives you his heart for this book. Look at verse 30. John says this, he says, Jesus performed many other signs, those are miracles by the way, many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John confesses to us, man, Jesus did a whole lot more miracles than I told you about. There's a whole lot I skipped over. And why is that? We would actually don't have to look further than the book of John for the answer. Do you remember, I know it was like 16 months ago when we were in John 2, but all the way back in John 2, this is how John 2 ends. John 2 verse 23 tells us this, speaking of Jesus, says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. So John tells us all the way back in John 2, three years prior to this, Jesus is at the Passover festival and he's putting on a show, right? He's performing all kinds of signs and all kinds of miracles and all sorts of people on that day were saying, I believe in this guy. I believe in Jesus. I'm on team Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. Because I see through your faith and I don't trust it because it won't last. Remember John 6. He feeds 5,000 people with just one boy's lunch. And the crowd there says they're all in with Jesus. They actually try to make him king. They're claiming he is the Messiah. And by the way, the following morning, they actually look like it. looks like they're backing it up because Jesus disappears in the middle of the night. And he goes across a sea in a boat. And they all actually get in boats and sail after him to find him. And after they make this journey, after they're all out pursuit of him. And when they get to him, instead of praising them, Jesus is like, no, you aren't here for the right reasons. You're all just hungry. You just want to see me put on a show again because your faith isn't real. And just a few verses later, John 6, verse 66 tells us this. It says, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. See, they were with him, 
right up until he taught something they weren't comfortable with. They were with him right up until he stopped performing miracles on demand for them. And then they bailed. This is why John didn't bother to include all the miracles that Jesus performed in his book. For one, we're told at the end of 21, there's too many to mention. But number two, they weren't a sideshow. John tells us what his real purpose is. He has written this book not to showboat or brag or give you a fun read. He's wrote this so that you would believe, not in the miracles themselves, but in the one who worked the miracles. The point of the book of John is for you to find Jesus. This is why after the resurrection, there is no I told you so moment to his enemies. This is why there's no parade announcing this. The miracle wasn't the point. The miracle was simply confirmation of who he was. The miracle proved that the words he had given them were true. The resurrection once and for all declares Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. That's what the resurrection does. And so our faith today is not in the defeat of death. It's in the one who defeated death. Our faith is not in some empty tomb. It's in the one who walked out of his tomb. Our faith is not in a miracle. It's in the one whose identity was confirmed by the miracle. And the one who defeated his own death is not finished. He still has work to be done. So there's no time for a victory lap. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us he's, he's going, he's not going to stop. He will not rest until all his enemies have been placed under his feet. And so he tells Mary, don't cling to me. This isn't the end. I've got something for you to do. He tells the disciples, guys, you, you're not to be hiding in a room anymore. I'm giving you power and I'm sending you out. And you're going to go out with the most important message the world has ever heard, my gospel. And those who believe in what you tell them, their sins are going to be forgiven. And those who refuse to believe what you tell them, their sins won't be forgiven. It is the stakes could not be higher. And the Thomas, he says, come. Come and check out my wounds. Come feel my scars. And know this, Thomas, you believe because you have seen. But I'm sending you out to tell an entire world that has not seen and much more blessed than you will be those who believe without seeing. And so they went. The book of Acts in church tell, history tells us where all they went. John wrote his gospel and he tells us, I wrote this so that you would believe in Jesus and by believing you would have eternal life. And somehow, some way along the path since then, we've missed the point. Somehow we've gotten it all wrong. But we now posture ourselves and we've come to believe that our relationship with God should be based on what he can or will do for us. So this is kind of, this is kind of how we think. This is our posture. Think of, well, if I'm going to church and I'm taking my family and I'm trying to treat people nice, and I'm going to watch my mouth a little and I'm going to teach my kids to be good people, then dang it, something better be coming back my way, right? What, what's coming my way, God? If I pray and pray and pray, God, what, what more do you need? You better answer my prayer the way I'm asking for it. If I do my best to follow you, I better experience health and comfort and ease all the days of my life. That stuff better fall, that discomforting stuff better fall on people who deserve it, not me. If I go where you send me, Lord, I better not lose my job or run into trouble. You see, when we take those postures, what we're telling God is this. We're telling me, your value to me, Lord, is what you can give me. And what you do for me is more important than who you are. I don't want to serve you, Lord. I want you to serve me. And the problem is... What, you can, what God can do for you is not the point. He's not your genie. He's not some divine ATM machine. He's not your concierge or servant. The point is Jesus. He is the prize and he is the glory and he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so what is the right response that we should have as his church to his resurrection? What do we do? 
But we actually see a couple good examples here. First thing we should do is seek after him with all our hearts. You notice Mary? You know one of the reasons why we can know the Gospels are true? Because no first century writer making up a story would ever include a woman as the first witness to resurrection. It wouldn't happen. Women were so devalued in that day, to, to write this story like this would immediately get your story tossed out. Yet John tells us the truth. Mary's the first one to see him. And why her? Well, she was at the cross. And then she followed him to the tomb. And then she waited out the Sabbath day. And the first thing, Sunday morning, before the, as the sun was just coming up, she was back at the tomb. She was seeking after him. She was in all-out pursuit of him. Yes, she was confused. Right, give her a little break. Nothing, they'd never seen anything like this before. But she was the first to see Jesus because she was constantly seeking after him. You notice Thomas? He made no effort at all. He just voiced his skepticism and doubt. Now by grace, and by grace alone, Thomas got to see the risen Jesus as well. But in doing so, Jesus tells him Mary's blessing was bigger. You see, we miss out on so much when we fail to pursue the Lord in our lives. There, there are these really small yet consistent steps that pay huge dividends in our lives over time. Little things like just beginning your day with just a few moments with him before you rush off to do your own thing. When people set aside times in their daily schedule to just seek after his word, to be in it, to be students of it. When people listen to, to music or podcasts or, or stations that, that turn your affections toward him. When you find the things in your life that stoke the flames of your faith and you pursue those things and give them priority. You're seeking after the Lord. You're facing a major decision this morning. Are you going through a trial? Are you coming up on a new season of life? Are you uncertain about your future? Well, for you and everyone, I can tell you this morning, the best possible thing you can do is get as close to God as you possibly can. The first thing we do in response to the resurrection is we seek after him. Number two is we trust his word. And this is huge. Turn with me back to John 5. It's a little left in your Bible. Same book, just back to chapter 5 in the book of John. This is Jesus telling you the point of everything before it happens. John chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 36. He says, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. Those are the miracles, by the way. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor, nor does his word dwell in you. That's a huge word there. For you do not believe the one he sent. Verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Do you catch what he's saying there? There's a lot of different layers. Jesus is telling that those religious leaders, back when they had a chance to respond in repentance and faith, that the miracles he was performing were a testimony that were designed to point them to the word of God. Because when you search the word of God, you find Jesus. What the miracles prove, Jesus said, is that everything God tells you about Jesus in his word is true. And so it all comes down to this. Look up at verse 24 of John chapter 5. Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word... And believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Let's pick that verse apart. 
Jesus says, whoever. Is there any limit on that, by the way? No, it's whoever will do this. Whoever will hear my word, not see my miracles, hear my word, and then believe him who sent me. That, that, that's the person that believes that what God has told us in his word is true. Will not be judged, Jesus says. That word actually means condemned. They will not be condemned, but they will pass from death to life. And so I need you, I need you this morning to follow this trail. It's hugely important. You cannot experience eternal life without knowing God. And you cannot know God apart from his son, Jesus. And you cannot know Jesus apart from his word. And so to get to where you want to go, more importantly, to get to where God wants to take you, you must start here. You must start by trusting and believing in what God has already told us and revealed to us. And the, the verification of that proof is the resurrection. Do you know anyone else who died a horribly brutal death and who then rose again? And if you're skeptical this morning, there's just something I want you to consider for just a second. Jesus Christ was a man who never traveled outside a region one-twelfth the size of Michigan. When he died, he never held a single political office or led an army. He never wrote a book. He had zero money, no land, and no possessions to his name. All the support he had left were a handful of women and 11 pretty cowardly men, most who had abandoned him, one who had denied him. That's how his life ended. And yet, from that one man has become more works of art, more books and more music than any other man. His name is known the world over. He's the main character of the book that's been read by more people throughout history than any other book. He is the most famous, most divisive, most talked about man who's ever walked this earth. All of his followers were put to death for claiming he rose from the dead. They were boiled in oil. They were beaten in stone. They were crucified upside down. And not a single one of them recanted their story that they saw him alive again after he died. And they were just to start. Since then, an estimated 70 million people have been killed for believing in Jesus and his resurrection without ever turning his backs on, their backs on him. Just today alone, there are people on every inhabited continent speaking countless languages and in endless cultures who will gather as one and worship this Jesus. They will sing praises to his name, they will seek after his word, and they will do so because today is Sunday, the day the stone rolled away and Jesus walked out of the grave no longer dead. Now, if you're skeptical, I challenge you to come up with a better explanation as to why that is than what God has told us. And I'll be waiting for a while. Every single miracle that is recorded in the bible serves a very specific purpose the miracles were never the point they always exist to give evidence of authority think about the israelites the miracles were never the point they were to cause them to trust the law the word that god had given them to follow the miracles of jesus are designed according to jesus himself to get us to trust his word the miracles of those first apostles performed as they were spreading the church. People asked, why don't those miracles happen today? Because we have the word. The miracles they were given by God gave them the authority to prove that the word, the gospel, was true. Because the miracles are never the point. They never lead to lasting faith. Deciding that you will trust the word of God is what that he has given us brings about the faith that actually produces lasting results. Because we don't believe in Christ because of what he can or might do for us. We believe in him because of who he is and because his word is true and trustworthy and faithful and we can hold to it. So we seek after him, we trust his word, and then lastly we accept his rule in our lives. One of the things Jesus talked about the most was this idea of a kingdom of God. He kept talking about how the kingdom of God was near, how he was establishing the kingdom of God, how we should live in the kingdom of God. Well, here's how author George Ladd defines this for us, and I love his definition. He says, the kingdom of God 
is his kingship, his rule, and his authority. When this is once realized, we can go through the New Testament and find passage after passage where this meaning is evident to us, where the kingdom is not a realm or a people, but the kingdom is simply God's reign. When Jesus said that we must receive the kingdom of God as little children, what he says, what he is calling us to do is receive God's rule in our lives. In order to enter the future realm of the kingdom, one must submit himself and perfect trust to God's rule in their life here and now. See, he's the king. He is the Lord. And we must submit ourselves in humble obedience to his rule now. And we fight against this, but this is for our best. Sailors in, in centuries past, when they would sail, they did not have computers and maps and satellite GPSs like we do now. All right, so there's two-fold strategies. Number one, they tried to sail along the coast as long as they could. That wasn't always possible. Sometimes they would have to go out in open waters. I don't know if you've ever been out in a boat in open waters, but every direction you turn, everything looks the same. And so the question that lay before them is, how do you find direction when everything around you looks exactly the same? And what they did is they would find Polaris, the North Star, which is the North Star, which is the only fixed star in the sky. And what happens is as the Earth rotates on its axis, all the other stars seem to move in a circle. But that one star, the North Star, remains in one spot. It's fixed in the northern hemisphere at all times. And these sailors learned, they, could, they learned measurements, and they could know where they were headed, what direction they were going based on the location of the North Star. Do you know what the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews? It tells us that as we run this race of life, that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. This means that in everything that we do, he is our anchor. He is our fixed point. He is our solution. He is our direction. So when it comes to my relationship with my spouse, my fixed point is not my marriage. It's King Jesus. And so in that relationship, I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to treat her like he tells me. That's the calling on your life. And it comes to your parenting. Your fixed point is King Jesus. You're going to shepherd these children's hearts to come to raise up in a knowledge and saving faith of him and to be builders of his kingdom and not their own. So when it comes to your career, your fixed point is Jesus. That your promotion, your salary is not everything your life is about. That this, this is just a means to resources that you can use to build his kingdom. These are people that you work with that you can share the hope you found in him. When it comes to your desires and your emotions and your impulses and your feelings, your fixed point is King Jesus and his word. And you never elevate those things over what he's revealed to you. When it comes to truth, your fixed point is King Jesus in his word. When it comes to your values and your priorities, he is our North Star. And when everything else is rotating around us, everything else is moving and chaotic, we fix our eyes on him and he charts our course. And so imagine with me, for just for a second, the freedom of knowing why you're here. I want you to see what, what Jesus' words do in just a few seconds. Mary went from confusion to clarity. Disciples went from fear and cowardliness to courage and power. Thomas went from doubt to confidence. Listen, those are the real miracles. Yes, Jesus Christ still has the power to heal the sick just by saying the word. He can manipulate nature to serve at his beck and call. There's nothing outside of his power or capability, but you must know he has reasons for when he brings a miracle and he has reasons when he decides not to. And he owes us nothing on that regard. 
because he's already given us everything. You see, the prize of our faith is not what God can do for us. The prize of our faith is not even freedom from guilt or forgiveness of sins. Believe it or not, the prize of our faith is not even eternal life in heaven. Though those are really awesome things. The prize is Jesus. And what you realize when you have him is that when you have him, no matter what else happens around you, you have enough because he is enough. Because he alone can bring life for there is death. He alone can forgive you of your sins. He alone took your place on the cross. He alone defeated death to offer you life that never ends. He alone can bring freedom and rid you of your need for control. He alone can bring courage where you're tuned. And he alone can bring victory over the bondage of the sin in your life. He alone has power that is made perfect in your weakness. He alone is worthy of your surrender. He alone is worthy of your praise. He alone is worthy of your life and your belief and your everything. What you need to know this morning is that when Jesus Christ came out of his tomb, what is presented to us is not someone who is to be admired. He was not presented to us as not someone to speak positively about. What is presented to us is not someone to be respected or a great teacher who is super enlightened and that we should all have positive feelings towards. What stands before us in light of the empty tomb, what stands before us in Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the supreme ruler over all creation, the one you should absolutely believe in, the one you should build your life around, the one that you should fall at his feet and surrender and build your entire course based on his word. And in doing so, John tells you, you will be given life. You'll cross from death to life. You'll discover that the resurrected one has begun resurrecting you. And it will be the only miracle you will ever need. So seek after him. And if this is all brand new to you and your, your mind is spinning, don't stop coming. Get in his word. Ask questions. And trust his word. Realize that what he has revealed to us is true. These, these truths are eternal. They're timeless. They've been verified by the resurrection. And then lastly, accept his rule in your life. There are those of you who have given your lives to Jesus Christ and you're still holding on to things. There's still these little pockets of your life, whether it be relationships or finances or sins, that you're like, no, I still want that. That's still mine. No more. No more. Surrender that to his kingship today. And to those who've never, ever surrendered your life to Christ, make today be the day that you cross from death to life. You cross from bondage to freedom. You cross from trusting yourself to trusting in the only one worth trusting, and that is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, Lord. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you not just for the empty tomb, but what it verifies. That Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He's everything he promised us to be. He's everything you revealed to us to be. And Lord, there are countless people in this room who, who, who found that to be true in their lives. There were two in this room who've expressed that through just the obedience of King Jesus says, I need to be baptized, I'm going to do it. But what amazing pictures of trust and faith and reliance. May we all be inspired to such levels of faith. Lord, may those of us in this midst who are trying to cling on to areas in our life, things that we haven't surrendered control to you over, things that, that we have said, no, these are our priorities. This is our time. This, isn't with this doesn't have to do with you, Lord. May we just give those things up today. The sins that we've been clinging to, relationships that are unhealthy, viewpoints, greed, 
Whatever it is, Lord, may we just surrender them at the feet of your authority and rule this morning. And God, lastly, we just pray that if there are any in here today who've never given their life to Jesus, they've never trusted in him for the forgiveness of sin, they've never crossed from death to life, that right now your Holy Spirit would convince them. As I'm saying these words, they're saying in their hearts, yes, God, I give my life to you. Yes, Jesus, please forgive me. Yes, you have control. Do this to the glory of your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've uh, come to the table this morning. And um, um, 